are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have author, activist, and former presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson, to come and talk to us about the AIDS crisis under Ronald Reagan. Hi, Marianne, how are you doing? Fine, thank you, how are you? Excellent. It's so nice to have you connect with us. So today we have Marianne Williamson. Um, she ran for president and she's also an author and an activist. So Marianne, most people won't, especially my audience are young and they won't remember the AIDS crisis. So how did that hit the U.S. and what happened there? Well, I'm glad that you want to talk about it because you're right. Millions of Americans weren't alive then, uh, don't remember it, and I believe it's um, an important American story. What happened was that early in the 1980s, you started hearing, I remember where I was standing in my apartment in Houston, Texas, when a friend of mine told me about their brother who had contacted some disease in Los Angeles and he was dying. And I said, well, why wouldn't he be dying? I mean, couldn't, can't they just give him antibiotics or something? And I remember her saying, no, it's some terrible new something that's happening and people that, and no medicine works and people are dying. So you started hearing these stories more and more. When I went to Los Angeles in 1983, I was speaking at a place called the Philosophical Research Society about a set of books called A Course in Miracles. And about in 1983, all of a sudden, it was kind of like the coronavirus, all of a sudden, you heard about this everywhere. However, it was different than the coronavirus. There was an opposite thing to it. The coronavirus is terrifying because it's almost like anybody can get it, and it apparently is so easy to get. But on the other hand, if you do get it, unless you're in a small you know, population, your chances of surviving it are very great. With AIDS, it was the opposite. It actually turned out to be a very hard disease to get, although we didn't know that at the beginning. However, if in fact you contracted the virus, your chances of survival were almost nil. So at the beginning, Western medicine kept playing its cards. It's not like they weren't sincerely trying. I mean, there are people sincerely trying right now with COVID. But like with COVID, you know, there just wasn't anything. There wasn't a, a treatment for it that would cure it or treat it. Even today, it's about treatment. And for quite a long time, the homophobia of the country was on full display around this. And I think because of that, it took a while before the organized religious institutions, there was just this vast silence. Does the president have any reaction to the announcement of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in 600, over 600 cases? It's known as gay plague. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty serious thing. Uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wondered if the president is aware of it. I don't have it. Are you? <laughs> well, do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Do you? You didn't answer my question. Well, How do you know? Does the president, in other words, the White House, does the president know 
great joke. No, I don't know anything about it, Lance. What the president? Does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry? I don't think so. I don't think there's any. There's been no personal experience here, Lester. Doctor, I checked early with Doctor Ruby this morning, and he's had no work. No patients suffered from AIDS or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and the real homophobic voices were big on it, etc. Now, I was a then young woman. I was 31 years old. I was giving talks about a God who loves you no matter what and miracles. So I was in Los Angeles and a lot of gay people began coming to my lectures. Mm-hmm. Now in Los Angeles, obviously the gay population, and this is still true today, is very disproportionately contributive in the arts. Mm. So Hollywood was devastated by this and photography and filmmaking and art directors and painters it was just horrible and you mix that with the fact that hollywood tends to be a very progressive community politically Mm -hmm. so hollywood really opened its heart so where i was living i mean i knew that this major homophobic thing was out there Mm But where I was, it was a mix of devastation and a lot of love. So I was giving lectures about two or three times a week, but every day we were doing uh, spiritual support groups. There was another woman named Louise Hay, who was also doing something called the Hayride, also a place where people who were dealing with the AIDS virus could come. So there was a lot of, for many people, a lot of support. So I started giving, at one of my talks I, uh, on a Saturday morning, I was talking about how we needed to rent a house. Mm-hmm. Because what would happen is, let's say you were dealing with the AIDS virus and you're in your home alone. And also I want to remind you, this was before, as a matter of fact, this is what caused a lot of the gay rights movement, etc. And I can't tell you how many, it seems crazy now, and it is crazy but I can't tell you how many of these young men were dealing with the fact that calling their parents to tell them they were gay mm-hmm. was actually harder than telling them they were dying. Wow. So a lot of them may have even gotten kicked out of their houses and things like that. Well, they were already out in the world, you know, oh, yeah. guys in their twenties, you know, their thirties, forties, you know, Mom and dad were back home wherever mom and dad, and in so many of those cases, mom and dad didn't even know you were gay. Wow. And now you have to call mom and dad and say you're dying of AIDS. So they didn't have any cures. So people, how long did it take for, I guess, people to it do took, that? It took, everybody had different experiences. And listen, some of those guys actually lived long enough so that when AZT came along and, you know, I remember I used to say uh, diabetes, there's no cure for diabetes, but it's a chronic manageable condition. Mm -hmm. There's no cure for cancer, but for many people, it's a chronic manageable condition. And so that's what ultimately happened. And some people did survive that time. Some people did survive that time because they lived long enough that then when the the medicines started arriving, but many didn't. There is a condition called carcisarcoma, mm-hmm. which is these dark purple spots. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember when people would start getting those. I remember neuropathy in the feet where people couldn't feel in their feet. It was very, very terrible, actually. So one day I said, (laughs) we should rent a house. Mm -hmm. This was in Los Angeles. We should rent a house because we were just renting various places where we could have these support groups. And I said, we should rent a house where people could come and we could have people who were therapists who could do therapy and we would have Reiki sessions and we would make food and people could watch movies just so that people wouldn't have to be sitting in their apartments alone. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is a great story. Uh, do you know who David Geffen is? No. David Geffen is an American billionaire, mm-hmm. openly gay. Mm-hmm. And my David Geffen story is, I think, very interesting. So David Geffen was at my lecture one Saturday morning Mm -hmm. where I said, we need to rent a house and we need to have a place where people could come and they won't be alone in their apartments during all this. So later that afternoon, I get a phone call from David Geffen. One of the things about rich people, they can always find your phone number, right? (laughs) And he said, I heard you talk this morning about this house. Tell me about this center for living you want to start. I said, well, I want to rent a house, and I think it should be in West Hollywood because so many of the guys live there. And by the way, not everyone was gay who was coming down with this. People got it from blood transfusions. Mm -hmm. Uh, One woman I knew, one night stand. She was a straight woman. I mean, you know, it wasn't just gay people who were dying, but primarily that and primarily young men. So he said, so tell me about this house you want. And I said, uh, and I told him I wanted to rent this house. People could come. And he said, well, how much money do you think you need to do this? Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, I think I could do it for $5,000. <laughs> now, if he was laughing, he didn't laugh over the phone. He said, really? So uh, how are you going to do it for $5,000? What will the $5,000 be for? And I said, well, and then I explained to David Geffen, you know, you have to have first and last month's rent. Oh. He said, really? So I'm explaining that to David Geffen, right? And he said, well, if that's first, you think you can get the house for 2500 I said, yeah. He said, but then what will you do to pay people to be there? I said, well, we'll do it. I'll be there and we'll all have volunteers. He said, okay. Well, thank you for explaining to me. You know, this sounds really interesting. I got off the phone and about an hour or two later, mm-hmm. that's another thing about which people that can also find out where you live. A messenger came to my door, mm-hmm. still brings tears to my eyes with a check for $50,000. Wow. And I had, I don't think I'd ever seen a check for $50,000. Wow. And so we started this house. And then we also had, there was a center for living in New York. And then other people started them in San Francisco and in Palm Beach. And then things continued to worsen. And I remember coming into the house one day and saying, where's Aiden or where's Jonathan or whatever. And somebody saying he was too sick to come in. Mm. One of the guys that we used to see a lot. And I said, well, how will he eat? Mm-hmm. And whoever it was said, well, I don't know. I said, okay, well, we'll have to just pack up the food and we'll take it to him. And that happened more and more. And I knew we needed to start something that was specifically a program to deliver homemade meals to people who were homebound with AIDS. There was a woman who started a similar project in San Francisco called Project Open Hand. 
Donna Stone started one in New York that was called God's Love We Deliver. Project Angel Food, when it started in LA, once again, the Hollywood community was just unbelievable. Because before that, raising money for non-medical support services for people with life-challenging illness raised us enough money to keep the house going. Mm But when you said to people, meals delivered to homebound people with AIDS, everybody knew somebody who was homebound with AIDS. Mm. And like in our first fundraiser, and remember, this was in 1989. In our first fundraiser, we raised a million dollars. Wow. It was things like, David Hockney will paint your refrigerator. Uh, not your refrigerator, your swimming pool. <laughs> uh, which is David Hockney sw- swimming pools. I mean, these go for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, tea with Liza Minnelli dinner with Bette Midler. It was just amazing. Hollywood really, Los Angeles really, and I think this is one of the shining lights really in the history of Los Angeles because to this day, uh, Project Angel Food now has served over 12 million meals. Wow, and it's still around? It's still around and it is meals for people homebound with life-challenging illnesses, which could mean anything. And that would, of course, include today, COVID. So I'm very happy the way generations of leadership have kept the dream alive. But people who were there at the time, and this was not only true of my experiences in New York and in Los Angeles, but people all over the country, and I think all over the world, who went through that time, just like we will never forget what we're going through now. Mm -hmm. People who went through the AIDS crisis will never forget it. And it changed us the way COVID is changing all of us now. It was like living in a war zone. But there was so much love. There was so much love. And there was so much, we will love each other through this. You know, everybody was going to, I was officiating at funerals all the time. Oh. I, was, I was at hospitals mm-hmm. all the time. And of course, it wasn't just the people who were dying. It was their grieving mothers and their mm. grieving fathers and their grieving lovers and their, or two people, two men who lived together and both of them had it. And it was, um, it was a, a chapter in American history that I'm very glad is over. But having been through it, I, I, I feel I'm a better person. If you were to compare the president back then and the president right now, like, Do you see any similarities in the way they used to handle it? Yeah, I see similarities in the coldness of the government and the beauty of the people. It took the government a long time to come through. And now it's more than taking a long time. It's a government policy that's basically dropped dead to millions of people. Yeah. But what was similar was the love. I mean, what you see, these doctors and these nurses and I think you see a lot of love right now. You see a lot of tragedy and a lot of love. It's actually very similar in that way. So I guess for me, I'm wondering, with, it, it seems like, I don't know how AIDS economically impacted people, but it seems like COVID hits people who are the poorest. So like- yeah, this is, that, that was not, like I said, it was the opposite. It was a hard disease to get, but if you got it, you were almost for sure dying. That was mm-hmm. almost given. Not in every case, but because some people live long enough that their T-cells work long enough, they got the medicine. Today, the economic situation is such that it promotes more fear for self. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't, I, well, actually my situation was actually, 
I had dated an IV drug using heroin addict. Oh, like a. Yeah. And I was very naive and thought that he was in recovery when he wasn't. Mm. So when I realized that he wasn't in recovery, and I remember getting my AIDS test, and when it came out negative, knowing in my heart how many people were not as lucky as I, and that my life should therefore be dedicated to helping people who are not as lucky as I. But once I got that negative test, I knew that I was not at risk mm-hmm. helping people who had the disease. That was a big difference. I didn't walk around. Once I got that negative test, you know, knowing that I would not gotten it from my IV, you know, my drug using boyfriend, then I was not afraid for my own safety. That's a difference now. It wasn't people walking down the street all over the place. For a while, there was this awfulness about, oh, could you just get it being around a gay person? I remember, for instance, Princess Diana went and visited a gay patient, AIDS patient, at a London hospital. And when she shook his hand, it made news all over the world. Wow. Yeah. It was a very, very big statement. Yeah, very big. Because there was, at the beginning, a lot of people who were like this, you know, like, I don't get around me if you're gay. That, pretty shortly, they became clearer, no, this is about, you know, fluids, bodily fluids, etc. So, how come Africa was hit a lot harder than the rest of the world with AIDS? Because I remember, and, and you're the historian, and you would know much more than I, but I do remember something about how we got very quickly sex was the transmission. Oh. And I remember there being all kinds of stories about how in Africa people did not, many people did not believe that, et cetera. That makes in sense. Fact, some places where it was even believed if you had sex with a virgin, you couldn't get it or whatever. You want to get you're, you're the historian, well, but that I makes, do remember a lot of things. That makes a lot of sense in that, Africa had just come out of colonialism, so I'd be a little suspicious hearing things from European people. Well, look at today with many of the things about vaccines, etc. Yeah, so it seems like you also did some hospice work for people who are dying. Well, everything I'm talking about really was essentially hospice work. Okay, so um, you know, when I when I say you know you'd go you'd spend all day in a hospital, you know you just spent your at least I you know spent my entire day you know just going from hospital to hospital, support group to support group funeral to funeral. And there were many people, not just me, man, there were thousands of people who were living the same life I was. And in Los Angeles, there were many people who worked as volunteers for the Center for Living, as volunteers for Project Angel Food. Uh, I saw that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry delivered for Project Angel Food uh, recently. The volunteers, and when we started the Center for Living, it really stemmed from my belief that spiritual seeking just circles back into narcissism if it's not used in service. And I remember how many people told me at the time who were volunteers, because it was a huge volunteer effort, how many people said, I'm getting as much from it as I'm giving. And it was homemade meals in the church that we had. It now has a building and people would draw pictures. And I called it Project Angel Food because I, I would always say to the volunteers, this for many of these people is the only person they will see all day. Wow. Pariah. When you show up at their door, This is, you are doing more than just delivering food. You are delivering love. And once we knew, you're not going to get AIDS from them. You're not going to have sex with them when you go in. (laughs) So you're you're going to just take your love with you. And the stories and the 
It was very, very beautiful. I guess the really interesting thing is the spiritual component that many on the left don't seem to understand even today in community building. What do you have to tell them about that? They're so ill-informed, so ill-informed. And so it's so lacking, even on every level, you name any level, and it's just stupid. Even on a strictly crass political level, there are people in this country who are very offended by a conversation regarding our, our country and our country's future that lacks any moral dimension mm-hmm. any, or any psychological or emotional perspicacity. I can tell you, we lived on love during that time. And it was from a spiritual impulse. I mean, it grew out of my lectures, my work with the Center for Living Project, Angel Food, et cetera, grew out of my Course in Miracles lectures. You better believe we were praying. And, you know, I ran for president, as you probably know. And a lot of the strategized smear against me was that I told gay people not to take their medicine, which is the most ridiculous thing in the world. There was no medicine. That's exactly. Like- yeah, that's number one. Or that I told people that their lovelessness caused it, which I never said anything like that. Or that all they needed was love to cure it. It was ridiculous. I said that our love would help us survive this together. And it did. It meant a tremendous amount that people had somewhere to go. Exactly. And, and they would show up at these support groups. And I remember saying how many times I said, this is a grief support group, not a grief denial group. We used to do these meditations where we would pool our our T cells, the big deal with the, with the disease was your T cell count. Mm-hmm. And so we'd say, okay, well, you only have a few T cells this week and you only have a two T cells this week. You only have a few T cells this week. And we used to do these visualizations where we pooled our T cells and everybody got to leave with all of them. And if somebody was sick, you know, they'd still be at the, we took care of you know, people would be at the group and some people would be lying down. And it was really beautiful, actually. I can tell. Um, I'm so sorry. Um, I, I didn't mean to upset you. Um, no, don't be silly. I always, uh, it's just, I, I go there. So go on. Okay. So a lot of people don't see this as political activism, but I see this as a very useful political activism where you oh build it. Listen, let's be clear about this. The abolitionist movement arose from the evangelicals in, Earl, in New Hampshire. Exactly. And the Quakers. And many of the women suffragettes were Quakers. It was their religious belief that the inner light makes all people equal. So the Quakers had this strong anti-slavery, anti-oppression, and still do, by the way, because of their religious belief in the equality of all souls of the inner light. And then Dr. King, hello, the civil rights movement, was led by a Baptist preacher. So if you look at the social justice movement, the history of the United States, you, what you see in all of the major social justice drives were religious and spiritual foundations. Yeah, and that's what I've noticed that it seems like, I believe that's where a lot of the urban-rural divide with where the Democratic Party can no longer connect. You're with absolutely those. correct. And, and I'll tell you something. As someone who was around then, I don't know how it happened. You know, John F. Kennedy said, we cannot afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. Mm -hmm. Um, RFK said it was a contest for the soul of America. 
obviously Martin Luther King, the whole idea was based on love and nonviolence. So the way, and I certainly saw it in my, in my campaign for the presidency, uh, for the nomination, the mockery mm-hmm. of anyone uh, coming at any of this from a spiritual perspective is aberrational. Yeah, and then they wonder why they're having trouble with connecting with her. And That's so... Right. And if I, if they do, if, if I'm offended by that, and I'm a major lefty, mm-hmm. imagine how the right, people on the right feel. Exactly. So what, what do you have to say to, like, and now I know there's a lot of people in the DSA, there's so many other organizations, but like, for example, in El Salvador, like a whole movement started after they assassinated the archbishop who was leftist. Well, let's talk about the Catholics. Okay. Now, the Catholics, the, the what do they call it? Um, there's a phrase for it. Salvation, um, social, social justice, gospel. Liberation theology. Liberation, liberation theology and the Catholics. When I was growing up, not only was the liberation theology very obviously a very front and center in terms of South America, Central America and other places, but also when I was growing up here in this country, you could always count on the Catholics to be lefties. Mm-hmm because of their stand regarding the poor, et cetera. Now, this is an interesting thing about religion and social justice in the United States. When I was growing up, you could count on two groups to always be there for lefty social justice issues, the Catholics and the Jews. The Catholics with the liberation theology and the Jews. However, simultaneously, both Catholics and Jews became seriously focused on single issues Mm. that took them away from the standard leftist issues, the Catholics on abortion and the Jews on Israel. So those two major legs, they were two major pillars. When I was growing up, if it was a major social justice issue, whether it was civil rights, whether it was poverty, whether it was hunger, you could count on the Catholics and you could count on the Jews. And when those two became split the way they did because of abortion and Israel, that and the perception on the part of many Jews, not all Jews, but the perception of many Jews that the Republicans were actually better for Israel, and the perception on the part of the Catholics and what was correct, that the Republicans was better for their view of um, abortion rights, that was a lot of power withdrawn from social justice issues. A big deal. Yeah, um, I've been wondering that because like when you hear the current Pope speak, he speaks more about poverty and hunger. And so abortion is never... He disapproves of abortion, but it's not a wedge he's issue. He's a great guy. He's called global, t- you know, he talks about global capitalism, you know, as a t- <laughs> terrorism. And he's right in the way, it's, the way it is carried out in many places. So what caused it to be a wedge issue here in the U.S.? That just Well, like I said, abortion and, uh, in the United States was abortion in Israel. You know, yeah, but why... I guess what I don't understand is why is it that so many people vote on just oh, abortion? Oh, how the left became so over-secularized. Is that your question? How did that happen? I guess, sure. Okay, well, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And when he was, as long as he was alive, he kept aloft the recognition that the civil rights movement was as much a spiritual movement as a political movement. Mm-hmm. But when his voice was no longer there, 
the civil rights movement continued, but the, it's the voices that spoke to it. For instance, take someone like Jesse Jackson. Mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson is a reverend, mm-hmm. but he didn't keep up the conversation that King had in its spiritual dimension. No, I, I, I barely registered that he's a exactly. reverend. Exactly. And RFK died. The, the juiciness. Now, during the Vietnam War, we did have a vital religious left. We had William Sloan Coffin at Yale. We had the Berrigan brothers, mm-hmm. uh, two uh, Catholic uh, priests. But after then, now in African-American communities, African-Americans have never disconnected left-wing politics from church. Mm-hmm. That, that disconnection for them never happened. But white Protestantism, I don't know. You'd have to ask a white Protestant because I don't know. So also there's, I guess, a large group of non-believers. Like how do we reconcile the future for, like, for non-believers and believers so that like, they can come together again? Well, my experience as a candidate makes me very hopeful and optimistic about that if only the corporate political elite will stop manipulating the population. Because my experience actually talking to voters was that voters, the, the American people are good people. We're a good people. I'm not saying we're better than other people, but we're as good as anyone. We're dignified people. I think the average American wants to do the right thing. The average American has a conscience. The disconnect in America is not that the average American does not have a conscience or try oh, no. to live by their conscience. The problem is that our public policy does not, is not guided by conscience or ethics or any sense of moral responsibility to people, planet, or animals because our huge multinational corporate matrix is not... Uh, is, has become untethered to any ethical or moral responsibility and their, or any sense of that, and their undue influence on Congress and the White House has, of course, uh, created a situation where our government does more to advocate for the short-term profits of those huge multinational corporations than it does to advocate for people, planet, or animals. Now, when I was running, my experience, and, and I'll give you an example. In the whitest states in America, mm-hmm. Two of the whitest states in America are Iowa and New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. When I would talk about reparations for black Americans, I would get standing ovations. Wow. Because presenting it as a moral argument worked with people. And that's something that Democrats never do. Thank you. So it was the Democratic DNC corporate elite who vilified, you know, it was a big get that woman off the stage. Oh, yes. So they create, she's a wacky, crazy lady, uh, anti-medicine, anti-science, dangerous, you know, ridiculous, that made many people say, well, I'm not going to go hear her talk. She's a joke. But when I actually talked to audiences, many of whom would say at the end, my God, you're not who I thought you were. But my experience, even though I left that experience even more disturbed by the corruption of the political system, I came out of it even more convinced that the American people ourselves, for instance, I'll give you an example. And we, we all know this, you know, if the DNC just did not put their finger on the, on the scale in 2016, either Hillary or Bernie would have won the primary. I don't know who would, but we would have all felt good about it. Exactly. And Trump would not be president today. 
And what I saw this time was the exact same thing. Being in the belly of that beast, experiencing that for a year, I saw this slow motion car crash. And it's very, very sad because, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, the only safe repository for power in the United States is in the hands of the people. And that is such a radical statement, and it is so radically true. Absolutely. Because the people are the immune system. Mm -hmm. So the problem is you have one major political party that really almost has contempt for democracy and another major political party who doesn't have faith in democracy. Not really. Which one has contempt and which one has no faith? Come on. Uh, Too many in the Democratic Party do everything possible to actually suppress democracy. And too many in the Democratic Party, as you could see in these primaries, would not really allow the people to speak. You're right. (laughs) They were doing more to dictate and manipulate the process than to facilitate it. Absolutely, you're right. I mean, mean, anybody with their eyes open can see that. At the time, if you remember, it seems so long ago now. But that whole silliness with the debates, which really are just a TV reality show, their line was that they had to, quote unquote, narrow the field. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to point out that no, they didn't, that that's the purpose of the primaries. Yes. And my experience of the voters in primary states such as Iowa and New Hampshire was such that I believe the the people could have handled this. Mm -hmm. Those voters were very aware of their power. They were very aware of the importance of their decision. As a candidate, I can assure you, they they kicked the tires in all the right way. Uh, It was very profound, actually. If the DNC kept their fingers off the scale and really just facilitated the ability of all the candidates to have equal access to the voters and the voters to have equal access to the candidates, I don't know what would have happened, but it, we'd be in a lot better shape today. I can assure you of that. Absolutely. Like for me, I went to South Carolina to canvas for Senator Sanders. And I, saw, I actually went to these rural areas and I was shocked. Like there was like, it looked, I'm, I'm sorry, this is politically incorrect, but it looked like a third world country in some areas. Like there was no water, there was no food for like eight miles. And so, but those people are not going to come and vote. And those people are the ones who need the power the most. Well, I think that we can see from the 2008 election, though, that those people would vote if they thought there was really something to vote for. Exactly. The people are the immune system for a functioning democracy. The best way to boost that immune system? Subscribe to historically.substack.com. You'll receive our newsletters and be able to listen to all of our podcasts. Once again, please subscribe to Historically dot substack dot com. Thanks for listening. So one last question, like, what do you advise? Like, like, I believe a lot of people on the left are feeling dejected and hopeless. Like, what do you advise them to do like right now, not four years from now, but okay, right now, down ballot progressives. You can go onto my site, Marianne2020.com, and I have where it says the people I have endorsed. There are majorly important races right now. Romanoff, Andrew Romanoff in Colorado. Colorado. Hickenlooper is a nice man. I met him on the campaign, but he's a, he's a, you know, he's he's a corporate Democrat. He drank frack fluid. (laughs) So, so yeah, exactly. So uh, Romanoff, we've got uh, Betsy Sweet in Maine. We've got uh, J.D. Scholten uh, running against Steve King for in Congress. Iowa. 
Iowa. Uh, we've got my whole list is really great. Uh, Jill Carter, uh, I think Marky. We should support Marky. Of course, in, uh, that, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and but so many races, the congressional races as well. Uh, the woman Jill Oliver in Austin, Texas. Will in um, Rochester, New York. Jill Carter in Maryland. There are some major progressives, Mike Broyhire in Kentucky. There's also another wonderful progressive there, Booker, but I go with Broyhire because Broyhire is a farmer. He's uh, running against uh, yeah, for Senate. This is an important one. This is an important one for your audience to know. Mitch McConnell, I think any person on the left would agree that the second most important race to deal with besides defeating Donald Trump is Mitch McConnell. Absolutely. Now, so the Democratic establishment is behind Amy McGrath. Mm -hmm. So this is the deal. McConnell has raised 17 million. McGrath has raised about 16 million. But the majority of that money comes from outside Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And guys don't like that. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, she is an ex-Marine, which is why the Democratic establishment thinks she'd be so perfect, right? McConnell, so when you talk about Lexington and Louisville, the Democrats win in Lexington and Louisville. The reason McConnell keeps winning is because he gets the rural areas. Mike Broyhire is the real progressive in that race, but this is the deal. He's an ex-Marine too, and that does matter to people in places like Kentucky. He's an ex-Marine also, but he's also a farmer. Oh. So Mike Broyhire is such an important possibility. He doesn't have a fraction of the money. Uh, that Amy McGrath has. But you know what, guys? You're asking me, what do you do? Give what you can. You know, and obviously, Shahid Batar in running against Nancy Pelosi, it's very interesting because when I did that endorsement the other night, over 260,000 people watched that video. And I'm thinking, gosh, if every person had given $1. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's a money game for so many of these races because typically the progressives uh, just don't have the money usually don't have the money that the corporate Democrats have. And yet, I think too many of us think, well, what could my $2 do? What could my $5 do? But actually, it could do a lot if enough of us pitch in. So I hope people will go to that endorsement list on my social media and Marianne 2020 and do what you can. So when you say, what can people do? That's what you can do. Support these progressive candidates. And I'll put it on the description link below. But thank you so much for availing yourself. I'm really honored to have been able to have yeah, been Thank able you to. for what you do. I'm your big fan. I read that one article and I went, whoa, uh, about, uh, it was about fascism and economics and Germany. And, uh, listen, uh, I'm a Jew and uh, my antenna mm -hmm. is up full upright about the, um, regarding the unfortunate similarities. Oh, to what's happening here, to what happened in Berlin, in, and articles like yours are so important for people to understand. Yeah, um, and for me, where my antenna goes up is that I see climate change is coming, and then they're restricting the immigration, and that's not disconnected. Right, and we will have hundreds of millions of climate refugees if we do not act radically in the next seven years. People, you know, right now, well, it is actually horrifying, and this would be true in Europe, too, to think what they would do to people trying to get onto the beach. That's what I see. The Trump administration, like, they're not going to let them in. And so that's, like, it, for me, and they're going to accelerate. So I really think we need to figure out, but hopefully we have to have faith in each other. <laughs> 
Yes, we have to have faith in each other and also we have to have faith in our power as citizens. Uh, this is not the time to not be active. So this is the time to know about these progressive candidates. It's time to support them in any way you can. It's time to elect them. It's the 11th hour, but it's not midnight yet. And uh, we have to remember that we are skating on very thin ice. Not only were we th skating on such thin ice regarding pandemics and infectious diseases, but we are, are on equally thin ice regarding nuclear issues. And if this had, God forbid, been a nuclear disaster, it would have even had worse and more long-term consequences. And as you said, we're skating on very thin ice regarding climate issues. So we've all got to get going. And I, I acknowledge you. Thank you for what your work does to inform. Information is power. I know I, I have been informed by you. I will continue to be. And uh, thank you for having me on your program. Well, thank you so much. And um, I'll send you an email so we should connect again. <laughs> great. I look forward to it, Asha. God bless you, honey. You, you too. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.